0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Music History Project. Today, we are going to be looking back at the career of Boots Randolph, a very famed studio musician, and we're going to be hearing from some people that were very heavily influenced by him. So stick around. Welcome to the Music History Project. We're your hosts, I'm Mike Mullins, Dan Del Fiorentino,
1: and Ashley Allison.
0: All of our content comes from the Oral History Program, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. That collection is over 4,000 interviews and constantly growing. If you'd like to check out any of our other content that's not featured, head over to nam.org/library. Welcome back to another episode of the Music History Project, everyone. We're really excited to be here today. We were fortunate enough to get an interview with Boots Randolph, which is very exciting, and we just wanted to remember his legacy today. And we're also going to be hearing from some other folks that were heavily influenced by him, including uh, Chuck Surak, the founder of Sweetwater Sound, uh, Tim Smith, a studio musician, also another musician, Derek Brown. Um, So it should be a really good episode today.
2: Yeah, I'm super excited about this episode as well. This is really going to be a lot of fun. I think one of the uh, the concepts behind this really was we were so fortunate in 2003 to uh, conduct an interview with Boots, but being a little bit of a shy guy, he didn't really go into great detail about his career. So I thought, you know, to help document really his contribution, let's get a few other perspectives. And the first person that came to mind is our good friend Chuck Surak. Chuck, uh, the founder of Sweetwater Sound, has always, since the very beginning of the NAM Oral History Program, been such a compelling supporter. He's helped us numerous times on a lot of different, uh, projects, and he's also a fan and knew, ch- uh, Boots pretty well. They play together on stage, and I think, um, he'll mention it, uh, that uh he actually owns one of boots's uh, saxophones so uh i thought of chuck i called him and i said what do you think of this idea of recording your thoughts about boots and we can put it in this podcast and he says well you know next week his musical director Boots's musical director for the last like 15 years of his career uh is coming over to my house so maybe the two of us could sit down and do something i said that's fantastic who is that he said that's Tim Smith, and I said, Tim Smith, we interviewed him a few months ago. So uh, it was fantastic. Tim is a fantastic... Uh, bass player who has been in the nashville studio scene for many many years and uh, i had no idea that he also worked with boots so that was a really special treat so the two of them got together and they recorded their thoughts so we're going to put that in this podcast along with our own interview with boots
1: definitely uh going to be a great episode. Looking forward to it. Uh, and so what we're going to start off with first is uh, the conversation that Chuck and Tim had, uh, just kind of talking about the influence that Boots had on both of their lives and just uh, what a great, generous man he was and uh, how meaningful he was to both both of them as well as the industry as well. So here is Chuck Serac and Tim Smith. What's well, wonderful to be here with you Chuck. Thank you Tim, So it's, it's a lot
3: of
4: fun. Nice to have you with the tenor in your hands. That's, that's why I first met you. That's true, yeah. Boots Randolph, our friend, our, our late friend. What a uh, what an amazing man, amazing musician. He was uh, a life-changing force in my life. Uh, you know, I, I was
3: really blessed to be born into a great music family and uh, my father passed away when I was 23 years old and When Boots came into my life there were so many similarities. Great musicianship and really funny and total professional and uh, I just found that gig playing with Boots. I did it uh, for a long time and uh, every night musically it was amazing and uh, just being in his presence was great. And I hate to tell you this, but you're not the only sax player who loved Boots.
5: I thought I was the most. You you are. You're the most important one (laughs) that
3: I know. Okay. But it's amazing, and I think your story. You can share it. Uh, So many sax players, uh, their parents turned them on to Boots Randolph because he was acceptable. He was doing. He wasn't doing way out avant garde music. He was doing melody, and people could get. He was playing popular music. Playing popular music and having hit records at it, and so so many great sax players that you know that was acceptable. Their parents turned them on to that, and. uh, so through the years, I've gotten to work with some really wonderful players. And when they find out that I work with Boots, it's always tell me what it was like, tell me what it's like. And, you know, you and I have talked about it a lot, uh, he was not formally trained
4: on the sax. That's right, but, uh, just happened to do everything right when he picked it up. Yeah, he he had a sound that. There's been a lot of great saxophone players, but there will never be another Boots Randolph. When when he when he played that saxophone, a lot of people have talked that you could hear the words come through as he played it, and that is just so so true. And I've talked to so many professional sax players through the years, and every one of them respects Boots, learned from Boots, was inspired by Boots, and frankly, that's how I got started. You know, I was just learning to play saxophone in fifth grade. So I'm a little guy at about 11 years old, and uh, that that January for my birthday, my parents gave me a Boots Randolph record, Yakity Sacks. In fact, it's just one right here, and uh, kind of interesting wow. this this record, but. Uh, when I got it, this was back when things were going from mono to stereo. Mm-hmm. And my mom and dad had ordered a stereo record of, of Yakety Sax, his big hit. And I put it on the turntable, and I hear the rhythm section, ready to start. And right when the sax is supposed to start, there's no saxophone, because it was on the other <laughs> channel. <laughs> it was on the other channel. I wish I'd have kept that record, but they turned around and sent it back and got the mono version of a, it.
3: Yeah, that would have been a collector's item. Yeah, the it mono be, version would yeah. be a collector's item. But uh, you're talking about his sound and, and the lyrics... Uh, one of the first things he told me when I started producing his records was he wanted a lead sheet with the real melody, not the embellished melody. Mm. And uh, and he wanted the original lyric, and he wanted the original chord changes. So I would write that on his on his sheet. And uh, I didn't think much about it. And then Fred Foster, who was my mentor and was Boots' producer for almost most of those Monument records, or all those Monument records you have there, he told me when they did Shadow of Your Smile that uh, after the record hit... Johnny Mandel, the great songwriter who wrote Smoke Gets in Your Eye, I mean, uh, Shout of Your Smile, called Fred up and said, I've got a bet with Paul Francis Webster. He was the lyricist that wrote the lyrics to Shout of Your Smile. And he said, what's the bet? He said, I bet him $10,000 that Boots Randolph had the lyrics on his music stand. (laughs) And Fred said, well, you won $10,000. He would never have cut a tune, Hmm. especially a ballad, and, uh, and you're right. He's, uh, your, your comment there, it's funny because I, I take it for granted because I was around him so much, but almost every musician, when they hear it, they say, well, he sounds like he's singing. Mm-hmm. He sounds like he knows the words. He knows what's going on there. And uh, he just a uh, total, total great,
4: great musician. Yeah, it's amazing. Think about all the songs that he's recorded. You know, he was he was the guy in Nashville for all the sixties and seventies and him and Floyd Kramer and Chet Atkins and part of that rhythm section that would play multiple sessions every day. And I remember talking to him and asking him about it. And some days it would be Famous people like Brenda Lee or Elvis and that sort of thing. But a lot of sessions were nobody's. But he recorded thousands and thousands and thousands of songs, 50 albums of his own. you know, Of his own. And then in that day, I've talked to some of the other members of the,
3: they call that the A team. Right, right. And uh, it was uh, Bob Moore on bass, Buddy Harmon on drums, Ray Eddington on acoustic guitar, Grady Martin on guitar. It was just amazing. Charlie McCoy, who's one of my dear friends, uh, as a 19-year-old came to town playing harmonica and became part of that A-team. And he said they would track four songs a session, and a session is three hours long. Right. So you have a, a session at 10 in the morning, you break at 1 for lunch, come back at 2, break at 5 for dinner, come back at 6. So for years, they were doing three sessions a day, five days a week. And, uh, you know, I, I'll i never forget uh, one time somebody came up to me two or three years after I'd played on their record, and they said you remember that lick you played on that one song on our record? And I was like, (laughs) and I thought, you know, and I I was doing a tiny number of records compared to a guy like Boots, and, uh, but he was always gracious with it, and, and uh, you know, one of the songs that he's most famous for wasn't even his song, it was Brenda Lee's Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree.
4: Oh, I love that. It comes and, out every year at Christmas, and when that gets to that big, rock well, sax is. solo in the middle. And it, man. what's funny about that is I, I was in a
3: van one time, and we were listening to the band Chicago, and 25 or four came up, and everybody could sing all the horn licks. <laughs> well, everybody can sing the sax solo yeah, to Rockin' yeah, Around the Christmas yeah, Tree. Of course. And uh, Boots was, we, we did some shows with Brenda before Boots passed, and Boots Brenda wanted to change the key Oh my! from, from A-flat down to G, and she was like, Boots, is that going to be a problem? He was like, I don't remember what I played the first time, <laughs> and we came up to it. He played the perfect solo down a half-step. He goes, well, it just seemed like it would fit. Yeah.
4: I always wondered how that happened, because I've seen it written in two different keys. Now I know the story. She she dropped her
3: keys about a half-step, I guess, when she got a little older, but uh, Chuck, you were such a big part of the last, really the last 10 years of, of Boots' life, recording us and helping us build studios and everything else. And, and uh, it, people don't believe me, but you are a witness to this. Uh, at 80 years old, before he died, he was playing
4: remarkably well. I, I didn't feel like he had lost anything important in his playing. You know, I, I listened to Boots. I've got every album he ever came out with, some that maybe didn't even come out, mm-hmm. a little bit bootleg, some special ones from Japan, and I've listened to just hundreds and hundreds of tracks he's done for other people, and I'll tell you, right to the end, he was playing really well, and I know he told you the same thing as he told me. As long as he was playing well, he wanted to keep playing, and, and I'm just so thankful that he, to the end, he played his very best. A lot of guys uh, get to a certain age, and uh, the m-
3: machine that's Nashville wants to put you out to pasture. Yeah. And people would ask Boots, when are you going to retire? And he'd be like, well, I'm not proud of what I sound like. And uh, Charlie McCoy says that. Uh, Harold Bradley, who passed away recently, played sessions in his 90s. And the most recorded guitarist of all time.
4: Well, you played that very last
3: job that Boots did. We did. And it's, it's an amazing story. We, uh, I produced a gospel record on Boots called Songs for the Spirit. And uh, my family had done a big outdoor gospel music festival in North Carolina for 37 straight years. And after my dad died, my brother and I kept doing it for a little while, then I just sort of walked away from it. And then the man that owned that whole mountain there in North Carolina, Grandfather Mountain, he called me one day, he goes, I heard that you're playing with Boots Randolph. I "I am. He goes, do you think he would come do singing on the mountain? And we had just finished this gospel record. I said, I guarantee it will (laughs) come. I said, can we sell CDs? He goes, absolutely. So we went over, and we did it, we did it one year, and, the, and Boots just thought it was wonderful. We went back the next year and did it, and uh, it was just the most beautiful day. Boots played incredible. The crowd was incredible, and uh, at the end, he had, my mom was there, and he asked my mom, he said, uh, would you go fix me a plate of chicken, take <laughs> back with me in the car? So she went and got him a plate of chicken, and he got in the car and left the mountains of North Carolina, and I decided not to go back to Nashville that day. I mm-hmm. decided to go visit my sister in Charlotte. So my mother and I drove to Charlotte. We were about three hours down the road, and Boots called me and he said, uh, "And I'm we were both diabetic." And he said, "Timbo, you got to stop at the Bean Pot on your way through Tennessee." He said, "They've got the best sugar-free butter pecan ice cream I've ever had in my life." And I said, "Well, I'll definitely stop and do that." He said, uh, "Well, call me when you get back." He said, "We've we got to start another record. We've wow. got Start another record." Wow. And uh, the next morning, I got the call from uh, from his son that he had had a massive stroke and. Uh, uh, you know, his place in Tennessee, he had a, a large lake in it, and he got home from that trip, went up and, to feed the fish in his lake, and came back down and told his wife, he said, uh, I think a bee flew in my ear and stung me on the eardrum. And uh, the doctors evidently think he was actually hearing the hmm. the rupturing of the blood vessels. But he was, uh, he was a kind and generous man, and, uh, you know, he was... Uh, what you saw was what you get. I've had people, I've worked with Dolly Parton, and they say, well, is she really like that? I was like, yeah. Hmm. And and Boots was like that. Absolutely. Uh, One day, we were at a house getting ready to go on a trip, and he was getting off of his tractor. He loved his tractors and working on his farm, and somebody pulled him to the driveway and said, I, do you know where boots randolph lives and and boots looked at the guy and he says i i think it's down the road a little bit there you know you mean this tractor of boots that's it that's it <laughs> i knew that was in this book he was absolutely as comfortable on that as he was yeah. on stage at carnegie Hall. that's amazing you know he yeah. just he loved it and was just a, a regular guy but uh but with you we we had some great treats we got to come up and play the embassy theater
4: with philharmonic and uh uh, that was my second time seeing Boots in the Embassy. My first time, I was a teenager, and I'd written Boots a three-page handwritten letter, long before computers, telling him what a fan I was, and I wanted to meet him as he played Fort Wayne at the Embassy Theater. As long before you mm-hmm. were even in the band. Frankly, I never heard from him, but that didn't matter. I kind of snuck downstairs and went backstage and got to meet Boots, and he was as kind as could be, and he signed some stuff for me and just sort of inspired me. You know. And, and as a teenager, you just never know where that inspiration is going to come from. And I, I can't imagine through his career because I've been to enough of his shows, enough of his gigs, and when he gets done, he waits and shakes hands and signs autographs and CDs for everybody that's there, and I just can't imagine how many people he's influenced through the years. Well, it's that, and just the, the sheer numbers, you know,
3: at at his club in Printers Alley, he sold, I think it was a Long Island iced tea, but it was in a glass boot. Through the years, people would come back to the gigs and say, I got this boot in 1970. I got this, <laughs> and it's like, boots is like, well, it, it, Anything left in there, you know. <laughs> but uh, no, he influenced so many people. And uh, when we did his last record, uh, which was a jazz record uh, called Whole New Ball Game, one of our dear friends in, in Nashville, Kirk Whalem, who's one of the top. Famous was, sax players. He's sure. Whitney Houston's band leader and sure. plays in the band four play now. Uh, he told me, he said, you know, I moved to Nashville just to breathe the same air as Boots Randolph." Wow. And I thought he was making it up. I thought he was pulling my leg. And he came to some shows, and he was so awestruck by Boots.
2: Okay, boy, you guys, this is really a lot of fun already. We're just getting warmed up. That was Chuck Zarek and his friend and ours, uh, Tim Smith, talking about Boots Randolph and today's episode of the Music History Project. Just remembering that great... Nashville recording artist and uh, studio musician. I just wanted to say a few little words before we get started with uh, part of uh, Boots' interview, which took place on the show floor in Nashville in 2003. Uh, just a fantastic opportunity to hang out with one of my heroes, I play sax. He played with Elvis, I'm a little bit of an Elvis fan, so the whole thing just worked out really well. Um, what was neat is um, how much I learned about boots afterwards and I think that because we're having Chuck and Tim weigh in on this, I think we're getting to see during this episode sort of the bigger picture. He was born in Paducah, Kentucky in 1927. And he actually uh, was raised in a family that were all musicians. So they had a family band and they traveled around and they played at church and fairs and festivals and all harvest programs and all that kind of stuff growing up. And um, because his dad played saxophone, um, Boots started playing ukulele and trombone. And one day his dad surprised him and brought home a saxophone and said, "'I think you should play this.' And boy, that was good for us. Uh, just amazing how well he he took to it and how creative he has been throughout his career. And I think that's one of the things that you're going to be hearing about today is just that diversity uh, in bringing um, nuances and a new style to playing the saxophone. Another interesting point is that he was in the U.S. Uh, Army Band uh, at the tailgate of World War II and played in all kinds of different venues during that time. And I think that's really where he decided that a career in music was really going to be a, a thing that he was going to pursue. I think up until that point, it wasn't necessarily something he thought he could do for a living. Um, but indeed, uh, it worked out really well. And when he got to Nashville, he hooked up with Fred Foster, the founder of Monument Records, uh, Fred, we got to interview as a matter of fact. So I'm really happy that we got to, uh, document some of that important history because, uh, Fred really had a great vision of what could be possible in Nashville outside of just country music. And so the pop recordings that, uh, uh, really took place thanks to Chet Atkins and the Owen brothers and others at that time, really started at that moment when uh, Fred Foster started Monument. And having uh, Boots there at the very beginning, I think, was a very critical element to the development of that sound and that approach to recording music. So uh, really fascinating stuff to me. And uh, so I can't wait to Play for you now the, uh, the first part of our segment from Boots Randolph's Nam oral history interview.
6: Went to a place called, in Decatur, Illinois, worked at a place called the Decatur Cocktail Lounge for about five years. And I formed my own group after I'd been there about three years. And I had a, basically it was what I thought was jazz at that time. It was basically jazz, just good swinging music. And I played it for about five years and then uh, went to another club down in Evansville, Indiana, and it was called the Blue Bar, a very famous place uh, where we, we had a little band and we played all kinds of music, dance music and some show stuff. And after I'd been there for about a year, I guess, I met a guy that took me to Nashville to meet Cheddar. And that was the door opening for me and for a lot of other guys, like Floyd Kramer and Jerry Reed and, and uh, you know, just on and on. All the young guys came to town. Well, they needed the help. And they, uh, they got jobs with, them, with the major studios and recorded for them. I recorded for RCA first, and then later on I went with Monument Records, and that's the company that I recorded with. Almost all of my recordings were with that company.
2: Wow. Do you recall the first time you met Chet? <coughs> it was in
6: 1958, <coughs> <Excuse me. coughs> and uh, uh, this friend that brought me down, his name was Byler Rich. He was a songwriter and he played the guitar and he wrote songs. And, and he'd been telling Chet about me and he had a, <clears throat> a demonstration, a demo that we'd made of some of the stuff he had written. And on the end he says, I want you to play a little something like maybe Chicken Reel or some little honky thing and let's take it to Chet and see what he... So he did it. he brought it to Chet, Chet listened to it he says, I like that. He says, why don't you bring this guy down here and let me meet him. So I go down to <clears throat> meet Chet. And uh, we got to know each other pretty good. Chet's a country boy. I'm a country boy. And we had lunch and we talked. Anyway, Chet's a brother-in-law. Brother-in-law? Yeah. Yes, he was. He and Jethro Burns married twins, twin sisters. Yeah, right. And would came into the club I was working to in Decatur, Illinois, and we jammed a lot. Cause I had a little jazz group and we just. They fell in love with what I did, and I loved them, because, geez, these guys could play, you know, Homer and, and They played. It. Chet said, I got a tape I want you to hear, Jeff. And Jeffro put it on. Put it on. It played about a half, about a half a course. And Jeff says, I know that guy. That's Beach Randolph. Chet says, well, how did you meet him? Where'd you know him from? Decatur, Illinois. The dog really swung off now, all right. I'm thinking, boy, this is my chance. I need to get in here and take advantage of it. So we started, and Chet said that, "Well, we want to record you and Spidey as a team, uh, and if you'll go home and write something, maybe you can come up with some kind of a cute ditty that will be uh, acceptable as a recording." And uh, so, not the first thing that came in, but a couple of more uh, after a couple of sessions, I had come up with Jack and he sax. So that was the beginning of my career, and that was what started it, and Jet was the one that put it together. I stayed with RCA about two years, two and a half years. They decided they would let me go. They were more interested in country music other than what I was doing, although I was playing country songs on the side. Uh, And I'd gotten on through uh, through recording with Brenda Lee, Elvis Presley, and a lot of the folks that came into Nashville, and I was becoming known as a backup artist but had no credibility as my own, you know. But when uh, I started recording for Monument Records, Fred Foster, and I had been, maybe one released before a single. You released singles back in those days. And then we'd recorded Yakety Sax, and, uh, and it started taking off in a, in a city that Fred was familiar with, Baltimore, Maryland, where Buddy Dean had a, a, a dance show on TV up there. And Buddy, uh, called a friend one day and he says, we've got this guy here in Baltimore that's doing a thing on television. He does a dance to Bruce Randolph's Yak and he Sacks. And he calls it the Lorenzo Star. And he did a little, little crazy looking thing but it was, it drives you nuts. The kids would try to dance. The little, the little kids can dance it. I mean, they can dance the heck out of it. And he had one of those Dick Clark bandstand kind of shows. where they all started to dance in Yak and Sacks. First thing you know, I had a smash hit in Baltimore. <laughs> and it kind of bled out from there. And, and then after success, success there, I, I did a, a an album called Boots with Strings. And it was like the lush kind of music. Shadow of Your Smile was one of the songs I did in there. And I had strings, and Anita Kern, a lot of the groups, the vocalists here in Nashville were backing me up. And it gave me a new perspective, and that's what I was after the yakni to go to that was really something you know so i recorded about 35-40 albums with Monument records did the uh, spider have anything to do with the uh, writing agony Sacks? he helped me to sort of sort of straighten it up yeah he had a little bit to do with it i i came up on the melody while i was doing a record session down in nashville here one day I, somebody had me play a little solo and i went through and i, I I played da and I went home and I got thinking about that phrase and said, that's kinda of hearty. that might make something. So I kept working with it. Sure enough, I put this and I put that in, and Spider would give
2: me the chords, and he put he put a lick or two in it. Yeah, we worked together on it.
5: Yeah.
2: Were you surprised at the success of that? At
6: the time I wasn't particularly surprised. I was happy about it. Uh, I thought it had the potential of maybe being something. But later on, as years went on, and then when Benny Hill pick, picked it up as the theme song on his show, Whoo! I mean, boy, things went wide open for me. I mean, I got the young crowd in there then, you know. <laughs> and, and that was it. That was, of course, that's, that's been my trademark all this time, and I, I still, I played every night. I played up in Sandusky, Ohio, no, not Sandusky, Ohio, I played in Lancaster, Pennsylvania last night. I'm going to play in Sandus, you know, too far. But uh, I always play it every night, of course, and one night at the club down in Perriners Alley where I had a club, I didn't play it one night. I don't know why I didn't play, but I just didn't play it. When I got through, he school would with me, and he said, so, we're not leaving until you play."
5: So,
6: you got better have a big fight out here, buddy. <laughs> so uh, it, it tells you, you know, it's, it's like, it's, it's my nemesis, I have to do it, you know. I'm glad to have it because it's, it's it's the song that got me out of the hills of Kentucky and put me down here in the hills of Tennessee.
2: <laughs> and if it weren't for Benny Hill, I'd still be up there in the hills of Kentucky, picking cotton or whatever it was well, successful at Soul Records, but um, its its legacy really was the Benny Hill, right? Did they tell you ahead of time they were going to use that? I have no idea they were using it. Somebody came to me and they said, Have you seen the Benny Hill show?
6: Lately? I said, No. He says, they're using your song for the theme song. I said, really? So I got to watch it, and sure enough, it was on there, and, and, uh, and the checks started falling. You know, they, they played the Billy Hill show like in 200 countries. I mean, it was all over the world, you know. Of course, the one good thing about instrumental music is there's, there's no language barrier. But I am uh, so thankful, and I'm proud that that is part of my life, still is. That's like it will be for a long time.
2: <laughs> Where does uh, the Bongo Band album fit into all of that? It was your first, wasn't it? By your- that was well,
6: one of the first. Uh, you know, I really don't know. I don't know who wrote that so I don't remember. I had about four songs that were on there. One was called Percolator. Yeah,
5: yeah.
6: One was called I'm Getting Your Message, Baby. And the other was called Bongo Band. Now, we were searching for some kind of a gimmick instrumental kind of thing. And uh, we really didn't hit until I recorded "Jacqueline Sacks. But I have people that remember those songs, and, and I get emails from Germany and different places. We want, we want you to record "Percolator" again, you know, because they can't get it anymore. And I said, "Oh Lord, don't, don't, don't do this to me."
5: <laughs>
6: it's like having a uh, what was it? What was the guy? The, Mr. you remember that song? Yeah. That guy had a one one dude hit, and and I don't think nobody ever heard of him after that. Well, I didn't want to be a hit with a gimmick record. I wanted it to be a good piece of music. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So once again, that was Boots Randolph in his oral history interview from 2003 at the NAM show. Very cool stuff. Coming up next, we're going to hear more from Chuck Surak and Tim Smith, and i Wanted to shout out that we actually have a full video version of the conversation between Chuck and Tim posted on the NAM website. So if you head over to nam.org, namm.org slash library, and you can either search for Remembering Boots Randolph, or you can head over to the vignette tag, and you'll see that video there. So let's jump back into this conversation with Chuck and Tim. They're going to be talking a little bit more about, um, different horns that Boots played, as well as some other shows that he had.
4: You and I could talk about Boots all day. Well, we have before, and (laughs) I'm sure we will again. uh, I'm not sure the audience will listen much longer, but I want to pull something out. And I just want to talk about Yakety Sack just for a couple minutes. I mean, that, that was this thing. And so I actually have a horn. I was told this this was the horn he recorded Yakety Sax on. Now, in fairness, he recorded Yakety Sax quite a few times. So I don't know if it was the original one or not, but this is a very, very old Selmer horn. And, and kind of like Kirk Whalem, when I play this horn, I swear the ghost of boots is in it. It just plays, I and mean, it's tired, it's a little worn out as a horn, but it plays so smooth and so easy. And I swear it gets me 5% closer to that boot. I'll never get the boot sound, but I get 5% closer when I play this horn he used to play. And I just, I'm so thankful that I was given a gift of a, of a horn like this. But well, he certainly talk, talk to about him. yakety. I mean, well, it, it's a it's a great
3: story. The uh, Chet Atkins was using Boots on uh, on other people's records, right? And uh, he thought, well, maybe. And he was the head of A and R for RCA Records at the time, so he thought, well, maybe we ought to do a record on Boots Randolph. And he didn't want Boots to do what what Floyd Kramer was doing, which was basically recording the hits of that year, right? That specific year. And and so he told Boots that if you can come up with a little clever tune. <laughs> uh let's you know we'll we'll cut we'll do this record and boots had a guy that was helping him make the drives back and forth Name uh, Rich was his last name. That's the that's story. The story. Ah, I wonder uh, why he was a co-writer so he, on it. <laughs> no, well, he got he got co-writing on Yakety Sax by uh-huh. being Boots' friend and helping him make the drive. Oh, that's that. way cool. He's not a musician. I didn't know that. Uh, Spider Rich, I think, was his name. But Boots came up with that figure. And what's funny is a lot of guys. You will have to tell me on the tenor. A lot of guys think it feels clumsy on tenor. It is the clumsy. Key of G. Uh, concert key of G, but it worked for Boots and it had this great sound. It it modulates to C and then he did some clever little uh, circus kind of thing in there. But um, they cut it on RCA. It completely flopped. (laughs) And uh, so Fred Foster at Monument Records had started using Boots on some sessions and he thought it was a great song. Didn't say anything. Finally, after RCA had spent all the money on Boots they were going to spend, Fred called Chet and said... Uh, I'd like for you to release Chet Atkins to me. And he said, Well, why? He said, Because I think I can make a great record on him. He goes, On what? He goes, On Yakety Sax. And Chet goes, There's nothing to that. <laughs> he goes, Well, I think I can make a great record on him. He goes, Well, I'll tell you what, you can have him. Wow. I'm going to keep using him on sessions, but if you want to sign him as an artist. So Fred hired a guy named Bill Purcell to play piano. Bill Purcell went in the, in the opened up the piano and dropped paper clips oh that's the the sound okay so when he would play it had this little extra attack it was something people just thought something was wrong with the piano at the time but uh it gave it a little extra bounce. and so a couple of same musicians were on this version but when it when it hit uh it mainly hit because fred's promotion man sent it to a tv station in baltimore Hmm. And they had a guy on there named Lorenzo the Clown. And oh, Lorenzo that's right. the Clown had a, a Saturday morning show, and he did this little dance, you know, with the big shoes, and he started doing that dance to yakety sax. And they people started calling the radio station, going, "How can I get a copy of that song <laughs> from Lorenzo?" And then they uh, they ended up calling Fred and, at Monument, and like, "You know, you got a hit up here in Baltimore." And he's like, "What are you talking about?"
4: And then it got really famous when it became the theme song for Benny Hill. It wasn't Boots playing it; they had another artist yeah. over in Europe record it, but re-recorded it in kind of a more comical style, and it became a big hit. For... And, and again, Boots did, had no idea who Benny Hill was. Well, of course not. He, when he got his first check, he was like, "What is this?"
3: At that point, Benny Hill's show was not being played on PBS. So eventually it eventually got licensed into the
4: states and started yeah. playing. And. All right, so, I love the joke that Boots always told on stage, that when it got to Benny Hill, it allowed him enough money to move from the hills of Kentucky down to the hills, the hills of Tennessee. Of Tennessee. <laughs> and, and, and it
3: did. It was, uh,
4: but that song, uh, and it's a, I, as
3: I said, when we started, I had a very blessed life with this, too. My uncle uh, was named Arthur Smith, Arthur Guitar Boogie Smith. In 1949, he wrote a song called Guitar Boogie that became the biggest selling sure. instrumental of all time. Uh, It was in 1949, they'd just gotten the three brothers that were in that group, my dad and my two uncles. Uh, That was replaced as the number one selling instrumental of all time in 1962 by Yakety Sax. That's awesome. Which was replaced in 1972 by Dueling Banjos, which my uncle also did. Wow, wow. And now I think Kenny G beat them (laughs) all. But uh, no, Boots was, Yakety Sax was incredibly successful. And, And then Shout of Your Smile was a million selling single. Yeah, boots with strings was a, you know, gold record. Uh, so did you ever do a gig where you didn't play yakety sax? Or, I didn't, but I asked boots one time, and he did one gig, and he he just forgot. He did. <laughs> he, he just said he walked off the stage and was going to come out and play yakety, and the house lights went up, and they went and left, and then he said the, the promoter was furious, so they <laughs> they actually went back and did another gig for him a year later for like next to nothing money but the boots said I, I i can't imagine boots i mean what happened with us is we had we would do stardust mm-hmm. at the end of stardust he would thank the audience and then he would turn around to us and he he didn't there, there's a bunch of different arrangements on it for us he would just play the first three notes and you knew him yeah. we'd, we'd yeah, be on yeah. it you know and had he ever walked off the stage without playing those three notes i would have probably gone right. Hey,
4: I don't know if you remember this, but you guys uh, I'm very thankful for this. But you came and played my wedding when I got oh, married. Absolutely. And uh, you're in the backyard, you're practicing before and I'm gonna he's gonna play Ava Maria right in the middle of, of my wedding, right? Great, great, great song, Ava Maria. And you're horsing around in the backyard, and he ends Ave Maria with yakety sacks And I said, "You got to do, do." And we did it for your ceremony. And, and so you did it for the ceremony, and it was awesome. It was just so perfect for me, and for and I'm just again thankful you guys came. I, I, that day. I was
3: always wondering what the other people, if there was anybody so completely serious <laughs> at the end of Ave Maria. Is. <laughs> That's right. Anyway, but uh, no boot, and that was one of Boots's happiest moments was to yeah. get to share that. I, I was telling you yesterday we. Uh, he used to go do the, the national anthem at spring right, events, right, and right. Uh, the last time he did it for me, uh, the owner of the Charlotte Hornets NBA team is a dear friend of mine, and uh, we he actually had his little small label, and we did a record with Boots called Nashville Standard Time. Love for, that record, for, yeah, for his yeah. label. And part of that deal was we flew over here for him to do a play the anthem, and uh, he walked out to Center Court, and this the Charlotte Coliseum at that point was the biggest arena in the NBA. Twenty-four thousand seats. Wow. Every game sold out. Eleven years in a row, they sold it every game. And Boots walks out to center court. and There's twenty-four thousand people, and I'm thinking, well, he's played big rooms before, but this is this is pretty <laughs> really big. Yeah. And he he walked out, and then right before he hit the first note, he stretched his leg out, and he was like, blah, blah, blah. and to this day, they say that was one of that. And uh, when the NBA All Star game was in Charlotte, Bruce Hornsby and Branford Marsalis did it as a duo. That was the two best anthems they ever
4: that's had in awesome. that room. But, So, uh, so was, ending ending on Yakety Sax. What's amazing to me, it's the song that's used anytime someone's falling down a hill or they speed it up. And I swear there's a new version that comes out every day or every week on yeah. YouTube. It, it's just amazing that a song has lasted that long.
3: Well, luckily for e- YouTube and email for me, you send me stuff often that uh, just shows that boots isn't forgotten. No. There's people still finding stuff. We found one the other day. It was in German. You know. Yep, it was, yep. uh, Boots, at one point, uh, became the musical ambassador for the Playboy Clubs for Hugh Hefner, went all over the world playing the Playboy Clubs. Unfortunately, that was before I joined the band. (laughs) But uh, I'm sure those guys enjoyed that. But, uh, yeah, Yakety became uh, a worldwide sensation. And I'm sure he told you this story, but... uh, uh, there's a great smooth jazz artist named Candy Dolfer. No, Candy well. And uh, her dad, Hans Dolfer, was really the best top educator, sax educator, yeah. and artist in Europe at one point. So he invited Boots to come over for the 100th anniversary mm. of the birth of Adolf Sachs. Wow. So Boots walks into this room and does his speech and talks a little bit. And then Hans Dolfer says, Boots, we have something special for you. And he goes, Oh, what? He thought they we were going to bring him a cake or something. Everybody in there opened their sax cases. <laughs> it's like 300 kids, and they all played yakity sax. Wow. I said, Boots, how was it? He goes,
4: not good. I was
3: say, probably scary. <laughs> we did a similar thing like that at Boots' memorial service. Yeah. I had some of the top guys in Nashville come play. I was
4: there. That's That a really we good, there. actually. It was very respectful. And so. Well, the, the sax
3: players uh, in Nashville all owe Boots a debt. Yeah. Everybody that... Uh, it does record dates and sessions. Uh, that never would have happened without Boots. You know, when Boots was young, uh, he was already a star, and uh, he was not, a, not allowed to play the Grand Ole Opry. He never got to play the Grand Ole Opry. The head of the Grand Ole Opry, the management, decided there would never be horns on the Grand Ole Opry. Uh, that changed after Boots' death, and there's some groups that have brought horns in there. He did a lot of TV shows on the stage of the Grand Ole Opry, mm-hmm, but was mm-hmm. never allowed to do that show. And people t- would go like, what do you need a saxophone for? Brenda Lee summed it up really good one day. She goes, I'm not making a record without Boots Randolph. I don't care if he plays the saxophone, but he's going to be there. And what he did on her records was if he didn't play a sax solo, he would stand behind her and play glockenspiel. Oh, that's funny. And play the melody, and it helped her
4: keep her pitch. Wow. I remember the joke that he always told from stage when he was, went down to Nashville the first time with his saxophone. And the players, the pickers down there didn't know what it was. And they always told him, are you going to shoot it or toot it? Toot it.
3: That's right. <laughs> we did a live video and that was the name of the video. Toot, shoot or Toot It. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, but, you know, he fit in. And, and I saw him fit in in every yeah. conceivable musical environment. He just knew how to do it.
1: Wow, uh that is quite the story of the uh, hundreds of kids playing Yakity sax. I don't know if I'd want to hear that either. <laughs> um but such great stories that uh Chuck and, and Tim are, are giving us right now and really giving us a better idea of just who Boots was um more than just the great studio musician uh that he was. So we're going to actually continue with Chuck and Tim for a little bit longer. They're going to be talking uh just a little bit more about his career um and also what a fantastic uh supporter he was of other musicians and how he uh just really wanted to support them and lift them up. Uh and so we're going to get hear a little bit more about that and then at the end of that we're also going to hear from another uh musician. Derek Brown, a saxophonist, and his thoughts on Boots and when he kind of discovered him and uh, still discovering him actually and the fantastic catalog that he has. So here is Chuck Serac and Tim Smith, followed by Derek Brown. I guess almost every gig I played with him, when we do
3: Stardust, we would not use the PA system. We would walk away from the microphones and Boots would just
4: use the acoustics of the room. I know, I've heard that. Speaking of, I have a friend that just did a transcription stardust of boots check this out oh my gosh it's pretty (laughs) i've not even played it here let me play it i've never i've never played i just got here maybe you hold the music for me okay you don't get to play bass that way i'll just play a little bit of it again i've not played this before but (laughs)
5: Oh, (laughs) Oh, oh, oh,
3: Well, and this guy did a great job because you know, this is getting pretty musical for our fans here. Yep. But he put a five-four bar in there. Boots always stretched that bar a little bit. He just <laughs> he wanted to because he was he was free to do it. He was yeah. playing it completely roboto. That's a great job. Who did this? Uh, oh, Carl
4: Weingruber. Yeah, I, good friend of mine. Another, another Boots fan inspired by Boots. Absolutely. But, yeah, I thought that was fun to show, and I, I hadn't played it before. That's pretty good. That's really good. Yeah, you know that that tune is
3: uh, uh, Boots loved. Uh, we used to come to Indiana probably more than in, any other place that I played mm. with him, and w- we went to Richmond, Indiana, and uh, which was the home of uh, Hoagy, H- Hoagy Carmichael, Carmichael who wrote sure. that song. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, we we played it there, and Boots was so, like, "That was a little extra special.
5: It?
3: So, <laughs> it really yeah, was. That's cool. And, well, that's people. That, uh, so again, and that's uh, if you can play a ballad on the horn. That's real a lot of p- people have incredible chops but when you make them
4: slow down and play something that means something this, this isn't the key that he played it in but my, one of my favorites of course
5: mm-hmm.
4: You can just hear him speak when he did that you know it, it's awesome
3: And the funny thing about one of my favorite stories and I'll, I'll go ahead and let the cat out of the bag the intro to that record uh, was not written when they were on the way to the studio. They were, they cut that song <laughs> in Los Angeles on Boots with Strings. And uh, Bill Justice was the arranger and he was in the limousine on the way to the studio and he told Fred and Boots and he goes, I forgot to put an intro on this. <laughs> and Boots just said, well, just play the five chord that then I'll come in. He goes, no, he said, i have got to put something. He looked up and there was a billboard in Hollywood and it was a an exotic dancer nice. appearing in Orange County and the phone number was 714 oh. and, and it's
4: sure, sure, that's funny.
3: And it has nothing to do with the song and people were like oh, that's a brilliant interpretation but it was, it was Bill Justice going like there's our intro and it became a big running joke for them but uh, they hit the last chord and then Boots you know, was rumbling on the line and then Boots goes doo 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 doo
6: <laughs> we
3: waited till the last, so it was like he was just yeah. wanting to pull you in. But uh, but he did that every night. I uh, One of the reasons I'm here in Indiana, Chuck and I are working together on a project with archiving all of Boots' music, and uh, I found set lists from the old days. Oh, wow. And Boots was a master at constructing a set. And uh, toward the end of his career, we had this set so down to a science, it would start with the Gentle On My Mind medley. Sure. King of the Road, uh, John King, Shadow of Your Smile, then Take Me Out to the Ball Game, which is a 300 beats a minute. That's a fast tune. I've fast seen you play it many times. It incredible. <laughs> and he wouldn't speak until after we finished that right. fourth tune. And he told me one day, he goes, Tim, you know that's on purpose. And so with my own
4: music, that's exactly what I started doing. I By the time stopped. he got to the end of the fourth song, he had the audience just under his fingertips. Right, yeah. Man, he, it was he knew exactly what to do. Yeah. And... Uh, in that
3: set list, almost every song on that set list, somebody in the audience was going to say, oh, that was my favorite
4: song. <laughs> and, uh, so you played a lot of gigs, I don't know, 15 years or something with him. Yeah. What were your favorites? What was a highlight? Obviously, that last one was pretty amazing. It, it, it was. We did. Uh, um, well, the Embassy Theater was
3: wonderful. And, and then there was, uh, and I think you came down at one point, we did uh, uh, the Alabama Theater in Myrtle Beach. Mm-hmm. We, we loved playing those kind of nice venues where you knew the sound was gonna be great, the audience was getting the full impact of it. Um, All the way to another venue that you came to, we used to play a little jazz club in Cocoa Beach. seated about 90 people. Heidi's, I love that place. Heidi's Jazz Club, and you, you know, the piano was funny. I mean, it was just nothing about that gig was going to be
4: great, but that gig, Boots went off the set list and played exactly what he wanted to play. Well, you know, funny, he, he took requests. That's yeah. one of the few times I ever saw him take requests, and here I'm in the audience, and I know his repertoire. I know every song he's ever recorded, and I asked for one that I doubt if he's ever played much before, a song called Little Bighorn, mm-hmm. one of the other few that he wrote, and uh, he looked at you, he looked at the rest of the band, and said, okay, and I think he called E flat. <laughs> i remember calling him on that because he's going who knows that song
3: (laughs) well you know and it's funny the uh a little bit with Boots. You know, Boots really got started in Nashville in the late 50s. He was living in Evansville, Indiana, and was in the house band at a place called the Blue Bar. And on that gig, he would get up, and after people had been drinking a while, he would get up on the bar and walk the bar. A and bar walk. <laughs> and people would drop money in his saxophone uh-huh. as he did it. And Homer and Jethro, who were very famous country music artists, used to come in there, and they told Chet Atkins about this saxophone player in Evansville that he had to go see. And uh, Chet heard about him, invited him to come down. So in the late 50s, Boots started getting so busy, he had a Volkswagen Bug. I didn't know that. And commuted from Evansville, and he got to where some weeks he was there every day. And his wife said, why don't we just move to Nashville? But uh, one night we were on a gig. I I, I played with Mel Tillis, the stuttering, famous Mel Tillis. And my first night on the gig, uh, somebody yelled out a song from the audience. And... Mel said, oh, that's a good one. Let's do it. And I was like, I don't know it. He goes, why don't you know it? It was a number one record. And I was like, what year? He said, 1958. I said, I was one. (laughs) But we we got through it anyway. But Boots was like that. He would call a tune that was on one of these an album cut off of one of these, and be like, don't you know that one? I was like,
4: yeah, Boots. One of the the shows that was of course, incredibly memorable to me, is getting him to come to Fort Wayne and, and play with our Philharmonic Orchestra. Yeah. I was on the Philharmonic Board at the time, and I thought he'd be a great pops artist. And I know he had done other yeah. big orchestras around the country. And he said, I'll come to town, but you've got to play with me. Talk about intimidating to walk on stage with V. Boots Randolph. And, and I think you had one of your guys write an arrangement of... Uh... We did Over the Rainbow. Over the Rainbow. And uh, Boots was just so
3: kind and generous, and we both had a lot of fun playing that. Too. That was a great night. I yeah. think, and, and as typical band members, we ate good on that trip. Too. There you go. Eating's always important. But, uh, yeah, the Embassy uh, is just a beautiful theater. And that's that's one of the things that, uh, thank goodness the people of Fort Wayne did that. And, and any city that's got an old venue, Boots yeah. was always about, uh, you know, take care of these old theaters. Because they just sound better. Yeah. You know, it's hard to build a... A room that has some of the
4: magic of those old places. Well, that room holds about 2,500 people, and I remember Boots going out the front of the stage, turning the sound system off, and he would just play, and you could just hear it fill the room, yeah. and you could hear you could hear a pin drop in that room when he played. Yeah. And again, I was I, I was sitting sort of amongst the orchestra, yeah.
3: and those people don't know what to expect. No. Most of them are not Boots Randolph fans, and they were.
4: They were blown away. With they were it. impressed because he, he could hang really well with all those professional classical musicians. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, the other thing people don't know, you hear his great music on the radio and records and that sort of thing. But until you saw a live show with boots, you didn't realize what a great entertainer he was. It, he the, could the tell best. stories and jokes and he'd have you in stitches and have great music on top of it.
3: He, he, You know, he came up from really with the tail end of vaudeville. But when he had his his own show in his own theaters, he would have a professional comedian. And uh, I always thought Boots was every bit as funnier or funnier yeah, than yeah. the comedian in the show. But that was what you did. You'd have an opener and you'd have this and you'd have a girl singer come out. And, uh, but Boots was the complete, total entertainer. And I, I was telling you yesterday, he he toured with Chet Atkins and Floyd Kramer for many years. And it was a spectacular I bet. group with full orchestra. But uh, Floyd was incredibly shy. He would He would say... I'm Floyd Kramer, and that was about it for him. I thought that was a stick. That, so that was, that was no, him. He was just wow. shy. He didn't like doing it. He didn't like talking in front of people, and and Chet was so dry. And then sometimes Chet would say something, and and the audience wouldn't laugh, <laughs> and it would just make him mad because he thought it was funny. <laughs> Boots was like, okay, I've got this, and he he got his chops together as a as a front man and was just brilliant and. Uh, uh, one of the things, and, I, and I'm sure you witnessed it too, we the the band that we had for really the last six or seven years of his life was a consistent band. And my brother Roddy played guitar. Steve Willett's great piano player and singer on piano. Rayvon Roats, who was with Boots for 25 years yeah, on amazing. drums, incredible. And uh, if if one of us played a good solo, it didn't detract from Boots. No, Boots. Wanted us to achieve. He was very
4: supportive. He, he was you could, very supportive. You could always. feel that from the audience when he would feature each of you and stuff. It was, it was great. And,
3: and I've seen big artists that get really upset yeah. if somebody does better than them for a minute. You know, it's like, but Boots was not that. He was a uh, uh, just so supportive of it. And, uh, you know, I've told you this before, too. I, I was 30 years old, younger than Boots. And I would stand behind him every night, sometimes having to sit on a stool because I was exhausted. And Boots would be up there on his feet playing and singing and entertaining and killing it every night. And it was just like, this is, uh, uh, and to, uh, I wish he could have lasted another 20 years, but the, the fact to finish that last gig, a beautiful gig, play great in a place that he loved, and then to go out while he was healthy and playing good. He never had to go through that thing that, all of musicians' dread is what happens when I can't absolutely I can't play that song anymore. what would boots what would have happened to boots if he couldn't have played Yakety anymore that'd have been really sad it, he'd yeah. have to have a stunt double to do it never happened boots was uh he was the always the best guy in the band you know no matter what we matter how good the band was and how talented we were, I always knew I was standing
4: on the shoulders of a giant there you know he was I've rushing. seen boots in many many situations, you know whether it's live or on video and all that and He's just always one of the best or not the best musicians on stage. And having spent time with him, I didn't really appreciate how good of a musician until I had some personal one-on-one time with him. I thought he played the sax great. I didn't know he was such a great musician, a great ear, and, and he was not uncomfortable anywhere. He'd play in any style of music. And you think about the recordings that he did from country to yeah. rock to jazz. And a lot of people didn't know him as a jazz artist because his label didn't want him to do that in those early days. But he could play fine, fine jazz. That last album you and I did together with him, it was fun to hear him play real jazz because I knew he could do it. (laughs) One of the great things about that record
3: is we Boots came over to the studio to do an overdub for somebody else and while he was there, he said, well, why don't we, y'all want to play a little bit? And so the band was there. We were already (laughs) in the studio. We played a tune and he said, let me put some headphones on. So I set up a microphone, put some headphones on and he stood in, in the laundry room of my studio with the washer and dryer and he played a couple of measures. He goes, uh, this sounds pretty good. What? Does it hurt anything to hit record on the computer? <laughs> so I hit record on Pro Tools. We start running through that. We listen to the playback. He goes, I think we're making a record. Wow. And then you did something that was so special to us. We got into that record, decided we would do it. I told you we were doing it. And you flew down and brought a microphone with you. And it was, uh, I think it was an M149. Anoyment M149. And it was very special. I think it was the one that maybe Bruce Swedeen or somebody yeah, had. Yep. yeah, yeah. yeah. And we a beat it with some other ones, and Boots played uh, played the ballads on that microphone, and I just thought that was a really special thing because that's a, that's the same
4: microphone that the great you know the greats would have been on. Boots always sounds great. In fact, I, I always enjoyed when he played live. He used relatively inexpensive microphones, good microphones, but yeah. he used a Shure SM58. Yeah. But having the opportunity to put a, a many, many thousand dollar mic on him just gave him another little edge, a little and, bit. Uh, and, and the thing is, he he could make a cheap microphone
3: sound good. On yeah, a great microphone, it was just like, it was just overkill. The amount of yeah. uh, information, musical information that was coming through was just incredible. But he, um,
7: he,
2: was, he was one of a kind. So I'd love to get your thoughts about uh, Mr. Randolph, if you wouldn't mind.
7: Yeah, you know, I will be honest. I didn't know much of his playing growing up. Um, you know, I first I first started listening to like the smooth jazz guys, the Dave Koz, Kenny G. You know, and that for for me at the beginning that was huge for me because it was it was super accessible to me. Um, I could understand the music. I even. I actually just connected with Dave Kaz a little while ago for the first time ever and, and thanked him because his, his albums, I remember going out into my garage in sixth grade and playing along with these recordings with my eyes closed and just pretending I was on stage. And so that was huge for me. And then I got into, you know, kind of the traditional jazz players and then the more modern jazz players. I also got into Bobby McFerrin, the great vocalist, he was my biggest influence for this music. I can tell you, I wish I had come across Boots Randolph sooner. I'll blame that on my parents for not introducing me. Um, Because, man, he is playing some amazing stuff. I mean, everyone knows Yakety Sax, which is really an amazing performance. He's doing a lot of cool stuff. But just him playing a ballad, I was was emailing with Chuck a little bit about this. Um, Just, I mean, that huge, huge tone... That beautiful vibrato, also just the way that he bends the pitches, yeah, yeah, so tasty, so tasty. Um, and then just realizing later on, I think it was after meeting, after becoming friends with Chuck Surik, uh, and 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 him talking about Boots and being like, oh, rocking around the Christmas tree, that's that's Boots right up. What? Okay, no wonder that's so good. You know, and all these classic recordings that he played on. I mean, that was certainly an influence for me. All these pop sax recordings that I didn't even know it was Boots playing and it was him. And I mean, he helped define what the saxophone could do and what it could sound like to the public ear. Um, And like I said, this idea about connecting with people, communicating, that is the most important thing. And yes, it's not about how many people you, you you reach. It's not a game about that. But we can learn so much from people. What is it that people like about this sound? Man, Boots is, those melodies that he's improvising, they're just, they're, some of them aren't super complex, but man, they just, you can sing them back immediately. There's something about the power of melody or just a really good tone. And yet Boots could do all those crazy things too. You know, sometimes people fault me, and this is probably true if I have a fault, I have many faults, but a, a big fault of mine is I want to throw it all out there. You know, I, I, oh, oh, I just have like a 10-minute a spot. Okay, I'm going to do my, my most crazy songs, you know, but sometimes people just want to hear a beautiful saxophone playing a beautiful melody, and I need to remind myself about that because that communicates something that just fast notes will never do. Once again, that's a thing that I think a lot of jazz musicians could learn from. Not saying jazz is bad. I love jazz. But a lot of them are known for just, just playing for themselves or just playing as fast as they can or as complex as they can. Which if they dig that and they're trying to say something complex, more power to them. Um, but if you're playing that way and you're wondering why no one's showing up, or you know, if you want people to show up, just it's just just think about that stuff. Once again, putting yourselves in the audience's shoes. It's not selling out, it's just thinking about how to be the most effective communicator. And I think that's what we all want to be with whatever our mission is. And I think Boots was maybe one, of, definitely one of the best at that.
0: So once again, that was Derek Brown at the end right there. Very cool guy. I was able to sit on, on the interview with Derek that me and Dan had not too long ago, a virtual interview. Um, Derek is a great saxophone player. I highly encourage you to check out his YouTube channel. He does this thing called saxophone beatboxing, which you have to see it. There's no way to describe it. You just have to see it. It's so cool. And uh, Derek's actually good friends with Chuck, uh, Surak, and Chuck helped us set that interview up. So thanks a lot to Chuck for for showing us Derek Brown and all the cool stuff that he can do with a saxophone.
2: Yeah, you know, what's uh, really fun is just the enthusiasm that Derek has about his instrument. And it reminds me of all of us when we first get to play and hear that first note. He's just been doing it for a long time and has that ex- same childlike enthusiasm. It's very, very, uh, very compelling, um, and very inspiring. The last segment coming up here, um, is, uh, Boots, uh, the final wrap up from his, uh, 2003 NAM oral history interview where he talks a little bit more about Elvis and working with Elvis just because the guy interviewing him kept harassing him about it. Um, and luckily for me, um, afterwards he, um, he mailed me a CD that he created uh, with all of the recordings that he did with Elvis, and there's actually 27 of them. Um, the, the final one being something I never heard before, uh, in the way it was edited here. Uh, from 1961, Elvis was asked to go to Hawaii and do a benefit concert for, uh, the U.S. Arizona and the uh, Pearl Harbor Memorial that they were building at that time. And they put on a concert and Boots was there and they, they did a song called Reconsider Baby, which is a, a, a song that they also recorded in the studio. But then they also did a, a version of Such a Night, which was a big hit for Elvis uh, in the late 50s. And I did not know that they did it at that concert. So that was an extra treat for me uh and i called him up and i told him so and he said well don't tell anybody uh well i can tell you now because it's all now out uh, released by the uh, the Presley estate um but at the time that was a big coup so thanks always to boots for that and you know it's amazing uh, um if you do have the chance and you are interested i'll give you a couple of my favorite highlights of the songs that uh boots recorded he he did a big hit with uh Al Hurt called java uh, as mentioned earlier he was on rocking around the christmas tree he also did uh, the fantastic version of mean woman blues by um, roy orbison and then for elvis is probably his biggest hit he did with elvis was uh, return to sender with that great saxophone there at the beginning uh that recording of reconsider baby is also fantastic if you don't know that tune you really should look that one up uh another really good one that he did that I'm uh very um I often play is uh riding the rainbow and uh, king of the whole wide world those were kind of movie soundtracks uh songs from Elvis which if you know the Elvis story you know that uh, they weren't the greatest songs ever but the the musicians and Elvis put everything they could into them, and that's a great example uh, of people like Boots just say, you know, this is our gig, let's do the best we can with this song. So uh, I think it really shows in, in uh, the fact that we're still talking about this stuff. So as you can tell, I was very happy about uh, meeting Boots, uh, and uh, thrilled. And I think that part of what I feel the the privilege and honor of having that opportunity is doing exactly what we're doing today, shedding some light on his career and keeping that legacy alive. So I'm so glad that we can do that. So back to Boots's recording of uh, his Nam Oral History interview. We mentioned a while ago some of the amazing people that you have worked with in your career. Um, tell us a little bit about some of those recordings, such as with Brenda Lee and so on.
6: Brenda Lee was a very talented young lady, if everybody knows that. Back in the, uh, I guess it was about 58 or 59, maybe 59, that I did first recording with Brenda. And we recorded uh, Rockin' Around a Christmas Tree, I'm not sure what year, it might have been 58, but I think it was either 58 or 59. And that was such a big, it wasn't a big hit when she first recorded it, later on it became a big hit. Uh, And I recorded all those little, I don't know what you would call them, I call them bubblegum hits back in those days. Uh, Sweet Nothings and a bunch of those things she did back in there. And uh, uh, it was got to be where she didn't want to go in and record unless I was in there. It was kind of a good luck charm, I guess. Elvis came to town and I got in on some of his things. As far as I know, I'm the only uh, saxophone player to ever played a solo on one of Elvis's records. Yeah, that's right. And we uh, consider babies the only, you know, on time I've ever heard anybody play. And uh, it, it, it traveled from one artist to another, and like one producer would say, we want you to come in and play B here, we might have you do something on a session. And I got in on a lot of sessions and didn't play on a, a whole lot of stuff, but if, if they wanted it, I was there, you know. And on Elvis' thing, I probably played more baritone sax on Elvis' and stuff than anything else because, like Scotty Moore was mentioning a while ago, I was the world's greatest clubbies player. Uh, Dun-dun, it's now or never. I played clubbies on that. Oh, you did? I played it, but I, I mean, I'm on the record, but I didn't play sax. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to remember. I played Morocco's on, the, I can't remember one other tune that you did. I played baritone sax on the Return to Cinder. Uh, and uh, I played jug on one of those crazy things you did while in the country or something. Like I went down to a, a flea market or something and found a brown jug about this tall. <laughs> and I played the jug on that, it's on that soundtrack. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I did I tried to play juice on but it hit my teeth, and I said, I'm not playing that thing. <laughs> That's not part of my criteria. Do you have an official credit for playing the jug? <laughs> yeah, I believe so. Yeah, I got paid for the jug. I still got the jug. It's at home. It doesn't have anything in it, but it's sitting at home. <laughs>
2: that's great. Well, uh, you, you sort of um, ran right over Reconsider Baby, and and uh, I'd like to go back to it for a minute because that's, uh, I, I really think, in my opinion, one of the greatest Elvis recordings, and it has a lot to do with the fact that he... He really um, focused on the blues, and and that had a lot to do with your solo, I think.
6: You know, Elvis was really a blues band. He came out of that Delta stuff down there, and he he was a real uh, fan of, of all the blues and the gospel stuff. was was pretty all put together, you know. And he says, this is late now, it must be 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning when we're recording. And he says, uh, "Go get your sax, and I want to I do a blues thing and let you play a little bit on it." And and we're all sitting. You know, we're pretty well rocked out by this time. But I, I wouldn't got the horn, and he starts playing it. And I, I think it might have been the first or second take that he did. And I, I had waited so long to play that I was I was keyed up, man. I mean, I'm I'm wired by now, you know. And I got that horn, and I. I I I don't know what kind of solo it was, but I listened to it not too too long. Ago. I listened to it. Again. It's a pretty good solo. It's great. But uh, he liked it. He really liked it, and 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 I, I was really proud because it's the only time that ever ever anybody ever played a sax solo.
2: Is there more than one version of that? It seems to me there's a longer version.
6: He did it at uh, at, at at Pearl Harbor. We don't we did a live concert over there, and I heard a, a version of it came from that same show, and I also played a solo on that particular thing. But that's the only one I know of. It could be another
2: one. Did you uh, perform live with him at any other time besides that uh, SS Arizona fundraising?
6: We, we did a couple of shows. We did one in Memphis. I think we did one in Shreveport. I don't remember if we did one here in Nashville. We did about four or five, and that was it. Uh, he didn't do a lot of concerts back in those days, those were right after he got out of the service, and then he did the uh, Blue Hawaii, so we did the soundtrack here uh, in Hollywood, and then we went on over to Hawaii and did the uh, concert for raising money for the Arizona young.
2: I'd love to get your thoughts about what it was like being in the studio, particularly in those uh, the soundtrack years, because even though we sort of hear a lot of bad things about how horrible the plots were in those movies, uh, there were some great musicians on those uh, recordings. And Tell me a little bit about how that worked out.
6: You know, movie music is different than a lot of other different... They're writing music for a scene. And a lot of times the scenes are built around a cube or vice versa. Uh, The musicians they had were all fabulous players. I mean, I remember out in Hollywood when we did some soundtracks, we had Barney Castle playing guitar, Hal Blaine on drums, and all of our guys from Nashville and people like that. And it was really uh, uh, the best of. And uh, I think probably, uh, you know, some of them were less than great songs. Let me put it like that. <laughs> uh, I remember the the publishers would be around and they were sort of helping to feed this stuff into Elvis and for the soundtracks. I remember we did one. I can. Hal Wallace directed. I can't remember what the movie was. And but there uh, uh, there there was a lot of choreography in it. And the guy said, "Well, I want you to play sax, but." this scene is going to be, he's going to be in a boat out in the middle of a lake and I can't figure that the saxophone players is going to be standing out there playing sax or something to that effect. <laughs> I said, well, he said, just, uh, just play kind of background said, don't get too wild and woolly. And that sort of thing went along. We tried to fit into whatever the, uh, the it called for, the scene or the occasion. And uh, Elvis was fun to work with because he always was, he was up and he had a lot of uh, energy. He was he was shy. He was naive, quite a bit. And uh, we discussed different things like uh, uh, having fun, you know. And, and that's what that whole industry about was about during those days was let's have a good time here, and it'll show, and it'll be part of life, you know. And it did. So I think uh, cutting soundtracks is a little different than than just regular outboarding. I think a little bit. Still the same process, but of course back in those days they hadn't. They would just did everything analog. It was no digital, you know. Right,
2: right, right, right. Can you tell me a little bit about uh, some of the guys in the studio with you? Are are really legends? One's Scotty Moore, I yeah. was talking with, and Buddy uh, Harmon. Buddy you know. Harmon. Tell me a little bit about some of those individual guys.
6: When I first came to Nashville, I met you know the the real inside guys. It was Buddy Harmon on drums? Floyd Kramer on piano. Bob Moore on guitar, on bass. Uh, Grady Martin on guitar, Hank Garland on guitar, Harold Bradley on guitar, and different instruments that were brought into the, the mix. Anita Kerr and the Anita Kerr singers were a big part of that. Also, the Jordanaires were a part of it. Uh, during during all of that beginning, sort of establishing the Nashville sound, there there was a a group of guys that was known as the A Team, and they still call them that, or they they call them that now. I'm not sure they were known for that at that time, which was uh, the guys that did all the recording sessions. And just about every session, there everybody showed up. They were hired for them, and then we went in there and sat down, and and uh, history was made, like Roy Orbison's Pretty Woman, and different things that happened right on the sessions.
5: <coughs>
6: these these people were so talented. Sitting in the orchestra out there it was just amazing. Not only were they good musicians, but they were contributing to the, to the really the, the product that we were trying to do. And nobody wanted to be a star, in particular. they just wanted to do something to enhance that particular recording. And it worked.
2: Were there other uh, named saxophone players um, in and around the Nashville studios when you were there?
6: No, not really. (laughs) Well, when I came to town, there was one guy, and he was in insurance sales. His name was Dutch MacMillan. And Dutch had played on some of those recordings with Grady Martin, the Slew Foot Five. That was some early recording. And he was the saxophone player. He was a close friend of Chet's. So I came down, and I did some sessions. And finally, uh, Dutch and Chet and some of them talked to me. He says, you need to move to Nashville. We need a saxophone player. And I said, "But I got a good job up in Evansville, Indiana. I'm making $150 a week. I don't want to lose my job." He said, "Well, we think you can do a whole lot better than that here." So, when I came in, really, literally, there was nobody doing sax work that I know of with the, with the group. So, first thing you know, I was playing on country sessions, rock and roll sessions, blues sessions, jazz, whatever. You know, but I had I had been into. The nightclubs, I had blended and been and uh, jazz and just about anything you want to name. All of my formidable years, and when it came time to go to the studios, I was ready for it. <laughs> you know, you ask me, you have, you tell me what kind of solo you want, and I'll play it for you. And I did that. <clears throat> Excuse me. I uh, <clears throat> One of the big rock hits that I played on was Speed Speedwagon's Little Queenie. And that was one of their first big hits, so I played the sax solo on that. I played Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree, sax solo. I played on Elvis' Elvis's stuff. I played on, uh, on uh, Al Hertz Java. Uh, and a lot of the country guys would come to town and say, we want to put sax on in case we have a chance to cross over from country to pop. And that's what my job was to sort of help direct that over, because country rock and roll and pop music was really being fused by this time. And a lot of the same people came to Nashville in order to get that sound, the Nashville sound, you know. But it was exciting. And all these musicians that we're speaking of, most of them are still living. Grady e. Martin passed away some time ago. Of course, Floyd's gone. Chet's gone. But some of them I still see, like Buddy Harmon and Bob Moore, Scotty Moore, uh, just different people, and we're all sitting around looking at each other saying, you know, we had a good time, didn't we? And we did
1: good. Well, this was such a fantastic episode. Um, I have to say, honestly, didn't know that much about Boots coming into this, but now uh, I have to say a huge fan. Pretty fantastic guy. And just hearing uh, Tim and Chuck talk more on that personal level about him, uh, really gives you a good idea of who he was as a person, not just the fantastic and sometimes hilarious musician that he was. So that was a great episode. I really enjoyed it guys.
2: Yeah. Thanks to you guys both for helping us put this together. Um, sometimes when I have an idea, it doesn't always work out. So I'm glad this one did. And it has a lot to do with both of you. So thank you very much. As my final thought, um, I just want to go back to the uh, the CD that uh, Boots gave me because, you know, when I was talking about some of my favorite songs, I can't believe I forgot to tell you about I Feel So Bad. That's one of my favorite songs that Boots was on with Elvis and Surrender and The Girl Next Door and Big Boss Man and Follow That Dream and um, What a Wonderful Life. So anyway, um, those are my final thoughts. There's always something that we could be learning and listening to from Boots.
1: Dan, did you just list the entire CD? <laughs> All the titles? <laughs>
2: no, I didn't. I've missed out on once is enough, almost always true, stepping out of line with witchcraft. Please don't drag that string around me. And, um, I, you know, one that I think I'm almost embarrassed to say, but. Is a is an Elvis song? Do the clam.
0: (laughs) All very good stuff. If you'd like to hear Dan talk more about Elvis, we have a full two part podcast that you can listen to wherever you get your podcasts. That is available.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Ashley asked. That's all I'm going to say. Ashley, you asked.
0: So thank you, everybody, so much for stopping by and listening. Uh, We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Be sure to tune in in two weeks to see our next episode. Until then, bye bye Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Music History Project. This has been Mike Mullins, Dan Del Fiorentino,
1: and Ashley Allison.
0: If you like what you heard today, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us some feedback. If you have recommendations for future episodes, just shoot us an email at library at